Indeed, it was finished. The simple words that Christ declared from the cross that has continued to give confidence and hope to the church ever since. As we now open God's word together, let us bow together in a word of prayer, ask him for the Lord's blessing upon our time. Oh, Father, we do come to you in the name of Christ, your Son, who has paid it all. We thank you that we are able to stand before you, address you, even though on our own, Father, we have no righteousness by which to stand. We ask that you would please hear our prayer and bless our time in your word this morning. May we hear your voice as you speak to the words that you have written for our instruction. And Father, we ask that you would please change us according to it. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, it's been said that there really are only two religions in the world. Only two religions in the world. And you would say, well, no, I thought there was a whole host of religions. What do you mean only two? Well, there's only two and there everyone is an adherent to one of those two religions. First, there's a religion that teaches salvation by works. And secondly, there's a religion that teaches salvation through faith. Biblical Christianity is the only religion in that second category. Every other belief system, even unbelief, and even those who may claim some sort of Christian identity or Christian foundation can fall into the first, a salvation by works. I've got a slide prepared to show this difference uh, between the two. On the top, you'll see a uh, salvation by works. Good works earn salvation. And you'll see this simple mathematical equation that all of these belief systems accord to, that faith plus good works results in or equals salvation. Biblical Christianity then is represented in the bottom section, which says that good works flow from salvation, that faith, simple faith alone, then results in salvation, and out of salvation then good works flows. This is the dividing line between biblical Christianity and all other faith systems or all other religions. And the question for each one of us is to know which side of the line we stand upon. They, both sides represent two different routes to establishing a rightness before God. Both of them represent two different avenues by which we can stand confidently before God on that final day. But they each diverge greatly and have vastly different results. One leads to life, the other to death. And so it's important for us to get this right. Jesus believed it was right 
it was important for us to get this right. And he helps us in our passage this morning. So I'd invite you to turn, if you haven't already, to Luke chapter 18. The Gospel of Luke chapter 18. If you don't have a Bible with you today, you can there, turn to one in the pew rack directly in front of you and you'll find our passage on page 1042. Our passage today begins a section here in chapter 18 that begins to focus on salvation. In a variety of ways, Jesus will address how one might be saved. And there's different ways that salvation is described in these verses. In our passage today, it's described as being justified. In the next few verses, it's going to talk about entering the kingdom. And in the verses after that, it's going to talk about obtaining eternal life or inheriting eternal life. But all these things refer to the same thing, whether it's being justified, entering the kingdom, or inheriting eternal life, they're all talking about salvation. At the end of your life, how will you find the blessing of God instead of the judgment of God? That's the question. How do you know you will be saved? How do you know you will stand be able to stand before him and hear the words, well done, instead of depart from me. Jesus answers that question very clearly in this chapter, and it begins with our passage today. And so let's follow along as I read verses 9 through 14 here in Luke chapter 18. It says, he, being Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Friends, in these verses this morning, we're going to see two different routes to righteousness that Jesus presents through this parable. And as we look at those two different routes to righteousness, we will see that the, what is the only way to be right with God is through his mercy. The only way to be right with God is through his mercy. And so again, the question that will be before us as we look at these two different routes is which route are you on? How are you seeking to be righteous? How are you seeking to be a person that God would commend? Let's begin by looking at the first route that Jesus describes. And we'll describe this first route as trusting in one's own works. Trusting in one's own works, verses 9 through 12. Verse 9 begins, it says he he tells he told another parable 
It's another parable because he told a parable already in chapter 18, beginning in verse 1 that we looked at last week. But instead of addressing the disciples as he did in verse 9, or sorry, verse 1, here in verse 9, he's speaking this parable to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And as we will see, the parable, those who most fit the bill for this audience are the Pharisees themselves. And so as we look at this first route described here, in verses 9 through 12, we're going to see four characteristics of those who are on this path. Those who are on this route seeking to be, find righteousness in this way, there's four ways that they can be characterized that we see here. First, in verse 9, we see that they trust in themselves. They trust in themselves. This is clear where he says, he told them a parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. This means that they believed that they were good people, that they were doing the right thing. This is who they were. This is what they did. They did what was right. Now, I think it's easy for people to read this parable and read this description, and they think that it's a pretty snobbish uh, group of people that Jesus must be addressing here. And obviously, the illustration of the Pharisee here, it does include the religiously snobbish. But I believe that this statement in and of itself of those who trust in themselves that they were righteous is a description that could be applied to all fallen humanity. In our sinful state, we naturally trust our own goodness. We think that we qualify in some sort of way. Oh, sure, we all admit, you can ask the person on the street, that we're not, we're, none of us are perfect. We all fall short in some way. We, we know that something is broken in us, but we somehow believe that God's going to grade on a scale. That someday that, that you know, God's going to look at our good deeds and our bad deeds and our good deeds will, will outweigh our bad. Or at least he'll see our hearts that we are trying to be good. We all think on our own that somehow we're good enough. We'll pass the test. And so I believe in one sense this parable then is directed to each and every person. It's directed to each and every one of us. Who is it that trusts in himself that he is righteous? Well, without Christ, it's you and it's me. It's our neighbors and our family. It's Americans and Africans. It's the rich and the poor. It's the religious and the secular. It's everybody. And so this parable we know highlights the religious person, but even the irreligious consider themselves righteous. Those who claim to be secular and have no belief system, so to speak, believe that they're good people, that they have a standard of righteousness that will pass muster, that in their eyes they are the good people and they look at us religious people as the bad people. They have a standard by which they judge themselves righteous. We've seen this in the last few years with the rise of the diversity, equity, and inclusion effort stemming from critical race theory. Who are the righteous ones? Well, they cast humanity into stratified categories and they determine who is more righteous than the others. Secular people, too, find ways 
to take pride in their own righteousness, believing that they are righteous. Now, in fact, in our irreligious age, this overt rejection of any sort of religion, the rise of the nuns, as they say in uh, sociological studies, N-O-N-E-S, those who don't have any official religious affiliation, they take pride in the fact that they're not religious snobs, that they're not stuck up. In other words, they essentially are happy to take the position of the tax collector, but instead they stand there and say, God, I thank you that I'm not like those Pharisees over there. They think that they're better than the goody two-shoes. Therefore, they too trust in themselves that they are righteous. Friends, the point is this. The poison of self-righteousness runs in all of our veins. The disease of Pharisaism runs in our blood. We are all guilty, apart from Christ, of taking pride in our own righteousness. And if we don't see that, then we're going to miss the point of this parable altogether. The reformer John Calvin said it this way. He said, no disease is more dangerous than arrogance. And yet all have it so deeply fixed in the marrow of their bones that it can scarcely be removed or destroyed by any remedy. It can be removed, and we're going to see how. But it is all deeply implanted in the sinful human heart. And so we need to see that this message is for us, those who have trusted in themselves. That's the first characteristic. The second characteristic of those on this route to righteousness is that they treat others with contempt. We see this also in verse 9. And treated others with contempt. It says, now this quality always comes along with those who trust in their own deeds. When our opinion of our own righteousness is elevated, then we look down our noses at everyone else. And this reality can be seen everywhere, right? You probably have a thousand of your own examples, both from your own life as well as the people around you. This can be seen in the employee that thinks she is the only one doing the work the right way and therefore she treats everyone else with disdain. This can be seen in the, the boss who thinks he's the most important person in the company and therefore he is never satisfied with the performance of his employees. This can be seen in the politician who believes that he is God's gift to his party in the country and therefore he attacks and puts down all his rivals. This can be seen in the church member who believes she is contributing more than everyone else and therefore she shakes her head at other church members who seem to be serving less. This can be seen in the pastor who has an inflated view of his importance to, the, to a local church and therefore he treats others poorly in order to protect his position. Of course, we could go on and on, but you get the point. And again, you may have your own examples. Wherever we elevate our own righteousness, we will put down other people. In one area, we could be humble and recognize that we don't know it all and that we, and that we aren't the star. But then in another area where we are more knowledgeable, more of an expert, have spent more time, learned more lessons, we can tend to take pride in that area and speak condescendingly to those who know less. 
And so the question before us as we go through this is, when is it that you find yourself looking down at other people? When is it that you find those feelings and thoughts of contempt that rise up in your own heart? When you cringe and wrinkle your nose at what other people are doing? Because wherever that takes place, wherever you are putting other people down in your own heart, it is in that place where you have an elevated view of your own righteousness and your own goodness. It is in that place where you arrogantly think that you're better than other people. Do you look down your nose at other drivers on the freeway and how they drive? I would never drive like, who do they think they are? Or maybe it's in watching the news and you see people who hold different political opinions, different moral positions. Do you criticize people in your heart for their lack of healthy eating or exercise and take pride in your own health regimen? In the church, do you treat others with contempt because of how they've hurt you in the past or how they maybe raise their kids or what they spend their money on or we could fill in the blank, right? Many ways in which we can think of ourselves better than those that share the same pew with us. But the question is, where does self-righteousness reside in your heart? This is a question which we need to examine. Where does it rear its ugly head and cause you to treat others with disdain? We must repent of all self-righteousness and the parable Jesus tells us here will help us to do that. But more than simply finding instances of self-righteousness, as I've alluded to already, Jesus' main target here is not just those who have instances of self-righteousness, but whose whole belief system, whose whole spiritual security and confidence rests upon their own deeds. These are people who are trusting in their own ability to do the right thing and to please God. When they put their head on the pillow at night and they believe that they are secure and right, that they have checked the right boxes and they are the ones who think they deserve, uh, that they deserve God to let them into heaven because of all the, the good they've done. These are the ones that Jesus believes is in great spiritual peril and they are the ones Jesus targets explicitly in this parable. And so let's begin to look at this parable beginning in verse 10. And as we do, we're going to see the third characteristic of those who are seeking to be righteous by trusting themselves. And that is that they take pride that they aren't like others. Those who are self-righteous take pride that they aren't like others. And it begins the parable... In verse 10, he introduces us to two men. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. In that first century society, nothing, the, the, the difference between these two could not be more stark. The Pharisee would have been seen as the, the paragon of virtue, the example of the moral one. There would have been no thing in his life that people could point to and say, see, that man messes up, that man's a sinner, that man has flaws. There would have been nothing they could point to. 
observably. The tax collector, on the other hand, was in the most hated profession in that society because he was a Jew who was a traitor to Israel. He was, uh, had been in cahoots with Rome and he's willing to take the taxes and not only take the taxes that were required, but he would ask for more so that he would enrich himself. And so you have those that were most respected and those that, one that was most respected and one that is most hated. And it says that these two men went up into the temple to pray. This most likely was probably not private prayer. It was not just, oh, I think I'll go to the temple today. This was, there were scheduled times of corporate prayer that people would go to the temple for the morning sacrifice and the evening sacrifice about 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. And it's common for the Jews to go up and have their corp, uh, pray there corporately. Now, it says just in terms of a, a, a note of understanding biblical geography, it says they went up to the temple to pray because the temple sits on a hill. And I've got a, a topographical map for you map people down at the bottom. If you see Mount Moriah, that is where the temple sat. And on either side are valleys. And so in order to get up to Mount Moriah where the temple sat, you had to go up. You had to go up the hill to the temple. You'll remember that in some of the Psalms, Psalm 15, Psalm 24, it asks, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? It's based upon the same geography. But not only were, did they sit upon a hill, but as they were forced to enter from the south, and as they entered through the steps of the south, you can go to the next slide, they then had to go up. You can see the temple there. This is the artist's re uh, reconstruction of that first century temple. And so you had to go up towards that grand uh, temple there. And there were steps there on the south side of the temple that we have since excavated. I'll show you a picture of those in a minute or right now. <laughs> uh, sorry, we haven't rehearsed this uh, slide thing. Um, and so you can see the doors that are there on the, the south side of that great wall of the temple. Uh, the temple mount, the actual temple building is just peeking up over the roof there. But... They would enter the temple complex that way through those uh, doors by climbing these steps. You can go to the next slide. And so as they had ascend these steps, they would then go up to the wall and into the gates. The, the gates are no longer visible. There's uh, three arch gates. These are the Hulda gates on the south side of the Temple Mount wall. Uh, and they have since been filled in through the intervening centuries. But you can see the sense of going up to the temple. They would climb this temple step, step by step to go up to worship and to pray to the Lord. Well, after introducing the two men, Jesus then tells us about the two different prayers of these men. And first, he introduces us to the Pharisee in verse 11. It says, look at it, the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. Now, he was standing praying. Some translations then say that he prayed to himself or prayed by himself. Um... I tend to agree with the ESV translation here that he was standing by himself, but both translations are legitimate. The point is that he is praying, and there's a, I believe there's a, what it's saying is standing by himself is a certain amount of distance. He recognizes that even though he's there with everybody, he's not going to contaminate himself with all of these other people. He's in a class unto himself. And here we see that his self righteousness has even affected his corporate worship. 
prayer, you'll notice verse 11, begins well enough. God, I thank you. I mean, that's a prayer you probably started with at some point, right? God, I thank you. It seems to be right. But even though it sounds pious initially, it shows his prayer will show his self-centeredness. He isn't interested really in praising or thanking God for what God has done. He's only interested in praising himself and he hopes that God will delight in hearing the praise he offers to himself. His prayer contains the word I five times. It's entirely self-focused. His thanks is centered on how he measures up to others. God, I thank you, you'll see, that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers. Extortioners were those who were simply thieves or that were experienced thieves. They were swindlers. They knew how to get money out of people and prey upon the vulnerable. It says he's not like the unjust, the second term there, or unrighteous. This is a general term for sinners. Thank you that I'm not like those wicked people, those bad people that are out there. And thirdly, he says that I'm not like adulterers, those who were unfaithful to their marriage covenant. But he believes that he's in a separate class all to himself, that he is not like other men. He is not in the vast majority of sinful humanity. He sees himself separated from them. And then after he goes down this list, he punctuates it with an example that's right in front of him. Notice he says, or even like this tax collector. You can sense the disdain in the word this, in this tax collector that stands right in front of me. This man, this Pharisee, measured himself over against other people. He assesses his own righteousness based upon how he's doing in comparison with others. And friends, this tendency is fundamental to fallen humanity. We like to take comfort in how well we're doing based upon how we see other people are doing. We look to people that are worse than us and seek to comfort ourselves that we're not as bad as them. We keep numbing our conscience of any sin that keeps rising up, any guilt that might, might prick our conscience. We stuff it down by saying, well, yeah, but what about them? I'm better than them. Now, it's true that in one sense, from an outward perspective, the Pharisee did live a more moral life than the tax collector. If you were just making a list of, of observable sins, the Pharisee's list would be very short and the tax collector's would be very long. And so we can understand where he's coming from. But the point is, is that he's only looking at externals. This is why he can say he's not like other men. Because if he really looked internally at the heart, he would recognize that he is just like every other person. And he would recognize that he is not any more righteous before God than this tax collector. In fact, what Jesus is showing here is that this man is just as far or farther from God as these hardened sinners that he lists. 
And friends, it's so easy to go through this parable and to shake our heads at this Pharisee. I mean, he's so blazoned in his pride and his arrogance and his condemnation of other people, it just makes you sick about how arrogant he is, and we just have a distaste for that. And so we avoid such blatant declarations of our own righteousness. I mean, it seems so foolish for him to puff himself up like this and to look down his nose at other people. But we need to recognize that we have the same capacity. We find ways to assuage our consciences from feeling guilt, the guilt of sin. We look to people who are worse than us. And we then content ourselves that we're doing okay. Well, at least it's not, I'm not that bad. At least we're not like them. And we may not have this list, but we have other lists. At least I don't do X, Y, and Z. We can see this in personal conflicts all the time where we have an eye to our own righteousness and we have an eye towards the sin of the other people. This happens in marriage counseling all the time. We want to try to help both parties be able to see their sin before the Lord, that they can confess it, repent, and turn from it. But it's so easy for the spouse to look to the other person's sins and say, yeah, but look at what he does. Look at what she does. And they're blinded to our own faults, blinded to our own sins. And we put them down and we show their sins so that we appear as the more righteous one. But this tactic of self-righteousness in which we highlight the sins of other people and ignore our own sins blinds us to our own deep spiritual problems. It keeps us from owning our own sin. And if we don't acknowledge our sin, if we won't see the, the brokenness that's inside of us, if we don't see the sin that resides deep inside of us before a holy God, then we cannot turn and repent of it and find forgiveness and cleansing. It will remain a barrier between us and the Lord. And so I ask you, do you content yourself with comparing yourself with other people who seem to be worse than you? Do you comfort yourself by saying, at least I'm not like blank? Friends, these tendencies of self-righteousness we must put away from us because they blind us to our sin. And it's only when we acknowledge our sin that we're going to find healing from Christ. Well, let's look finally at the fourth characteristic of those who seek righteousness on this first path. Fourthly, they take confidence in their good works. They take confidence in their good works. We see this in verse 12. Short verse, it says, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. He closed out his prayer by not just pointing out the sin of other people, but then he highlights his own righteous deeds. Well, you know, they do all those things, but me, let me roll out my long list of things, and I believe that this is just representative. Jesus is trying to show us that this man is trying to show of the good things that he's done, and he lists two representative religious activities. He mentions, first of all, fasting twice a week. The Old Testament didn't require fasting twice a week. It only commanded that they fast once a year, and that was at the Day of Atonement. 
The Pharisees worked it into their religious system to fast on Mondays and Thursdays. Now, there was nothing inherently wrong with fasting twice a week. That itself is not a bad thing necessarily, but it's clear that this man took pride in his faithfulness, took pride in the fact that he continued to do this. But in addition to his fasting, he mentions, secondly, his tithing. He says, I give tithes of all that I get. The Jews were required to give a tenth of what they earn, but this man is saying that he goes above and beyond that. It's not just in what he's earned, but in what he's been given. He gives a tenth. In other places, we see that these men would tithe even their herbs to give a tenth to the Lord of mint and dill and cumin. But the point here is that this man, because of his fasting and tithing, he believes that uh, he is a righteous man deserving of a pat on the back from God because of what he's done. He believes that he's done a pretty good job. He's patting himself on the back. And he believes that once God hears all that he's done, that he'll get a pat on the back from God too. And again, we can shake our heads at this. How foolish of you to just flaunt your, your list of righteous deeds before God. But this, again, is inherent to us as well. We naturally like to look at our track record and believe that the good will outweigh the bad. And this is what most people think. If you ask them how God could let them into heaven, they'll say, well, I believe my good deeds will outweigh my bad. Or at least that I've tried to be good. And friends, we've got to address this too because it's especially in religious circles. Even those in the church that can easily take pride in religious activities and going about of Christian duties. People can think that because they're doing religious things, they're being faithful, that God should be happy with them and should accept them. He should be happy with their church attendance. He should be happy with their Bible reading. They could earn that they could earn God's happiness through giving money to the church or in generosity to those in need. Or maybe it's through reading Christian books or some sort of strictness within their media choices. Doing something that God would commend and would seem to be good. And they think that if I do these things and I stay faithful at them, then surely God's going to be happy with me. And friends, all those things that I mentioned, there's nothing wrong with them inherently. In fact, many of them were commanded to do. But the problem arises when we depend upon them and find our spiritual security and confidence in the duties we perform. When that is the case, our faith, get this, is not in Christ but in ourselves. If we find security and we believe God will be happy with us because of the things that we do, our faith is not in Christ but in ourselves. And we fall into the category error of these Pharisees. Friends, this Pharisee can seem strange and far away. I mean, he's part of some wacko religious sect walking up to some temple that I, you know, we don't, aren't familiar with. He's talking about tithing and, and fasting and and we can tend to push him off as just this crazy religious wacko. But we've got to see that the tendencies, the things that he 
is doing here in this parable, Jesus is using him to illustrate that this is something that all of fallen humanity does. And we need to see that this Pharisee is a lot closer than we'd like to think. In fact, he may be a reflection of our own hearts. And so this Pharisee illustrates that first route to righteousness that Jesus seeks to show us in this parable. But we need to look now at the second one and see the shocking truth that Jesus reveals. So we've seen first, the first route to righteousness is those who trust in their own works. But secondly, the second route that Jesus is going to show us is the second route to righteousness is by trusting in God's free mercy. Trusting in God's free mercy. And we see this in verses 13 and 14 as Jesus turns in the story from the Pharisee to the tax collector. Now, as he turns here, we're going to see the contrast is stark. Jesus is going to make it clear that this route, this way that the tax collector is going, is the only route to salvation. The only hope we have of possessing eternal life, the only hope we have of being able to stand before God on that final day and be entered into life everlasting is by walking the same path that the tax collector trods. There's four characteristics here also. Just as we saw four of the other route, we see four of those who walk upon this route. The first characteristic we see here is that they humble themselves before God. Those who are trusted in God's free mercy humble themselves before God. Look at verse 13 with me. It says, But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast. Here we see the humility of this tax collector in his posture and his position. He doesn't go with a throng of people. He doesn't stand with all of them. Not like the Pharisee because he doesn't want to be contaminated, but because he doesn't see himself as worthy. He recognizes that he, he feels like he's in a different class. Not because he's more righteous, but because he's most wicked. He doesn't deserve to stand with the other worshipers, with the Pharisees. He's more wicked than them. But more than just his unworthiness before other people, he knows he stands unworthy before God. Look at what it says about his eyes. He's praying to God, but he says he would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. He's so ashamed of what he's done. He's so cut to the heart that he can't look God in the face, as it were. He, he, he's got to keep his head down because of how broken he is. He knows he's got to give an account to God. That's why he's there. He's not running away from God. He's going to God, but he, he can't bring himself to look heavenward because of the guilt that sits upon his heart. But in addition to looking down, it says that he beat his breast. He was hitting himself in deep agony and sorrow. This was an action that was done at a funeral to express deep sorrow over one that was, had died. We see it done by those at the cross of Christ in Luke 23. This tax collector was cut to the heart. His sorrow was overwhelming. He knew of his wickedness and he was undone. And I believe there's a sense in which he was quite a spectacle. He was off to the side, yes. But I have to imagine there was cries and tears that came with his sorrow. 
as he beat his breast, the people would go, well, he's not like the rest of us. And yet, in his reckoning with God, he didn't care what other people thought about him. He was oblivious to the others around him because he was there to talk with the Lord. He was there to do business with God. This heart of humility shows a vastly different posture than that of the Pharisee, doesn't it? The Pharisee who stands there, looks up to God, and looks down his nose at the people around him. Here the tax collector is there beating his breast and crying out before God, not even lifting his eyes to heaven. He's humbled before the Lord. And this is the attitude that Jesus commends. So in order to be right with God, we've got to first humble ourselves before God. But the second characteristic we see here as exampled by this tax collector is that those who are seeking to be right by God's free mercy, they confess their sinfulness before God. They confess their sinfulness before God. Look at what his prayer was in verse 13. He says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This is a simple prayer. So many fewer words than the Pharisees. He, the, the verse could be translated, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. The sinner, a definite article. He's saying, almost like in contrast to that Pharisee, God, I, between the two of us, I'm the sinner. That man, he's got moral credentials. He's good. He's, he's done so much for you, Lord, but, but I'm the sinner. But what he gets that the Pharisee doesn't is he understands the depth of his depravity. He understands the sin that he has before a holy God. But friends, note this. It is not the presence of sin that separates the Pharisee and tax collector as if the tax collector has sin and the Pharisee had none. It's the acknowledgement of the sin that separates the two. They both have sin. They are both equally condemned before a holy God and yet one acknowledges it and that is the tax collector. The only sin that was on the Pharisee's mind was the sin of other people. He didn't even have it in a category that he might have some sin because self-righteous people fail to see sin in themselves. Or they might be willing to admit sin in a certain area, but they still think themselves better than other sinners, right? We still want to judge ourselves by others, and even though we might be in the, the bottom category, we're still the top of the bottom category. But notice that the tax collector, does he mention anybody else? Oh, you say, well, he's got no one else to, uh, there's no one else worse than him. And that could be. But I don't think he's got anybody else on his mind. It, the only two, the two persons on his mind right now is himself and God. The only two people that are, the only two persons that are in this prayer. He doesn't compare himself to others. He simply goes to God and confesses, I am a sinner. And friends, this is the path to being right with God is that we must confess our sin before God. It seems counterintuitive. We, we feel like we need to clean ourselves up before we go to God, that, that if I'm going to go stand before a holy God, then I've got to go clean myself up before I can even approach him. 
But friends, there's no way that we can clean ourselves up. It's like getting a bunch of oil dumped on you and trying to clean yourself up with just the clothes you have on you. You're just smearing it all over you. You can't actually get yourself clean. But see, the good news of the gospel is that we take our dirty selves and we go to the very God that deserves, that should punish us, and he has offered a way of salvation that we might be cleaned. We must begin by confessing our sin before him. We must go and humble ourselves, acknowledging that we indeed are sinners. We don't go and cover up our sin. We don't go and try to excuse our sin. We must completely confess our sin and unworthiness before God. And it is only there that we then find healing and hope. Like David in Psalm 51, we must say this, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. The path to salvation always runs through repentance, not through moral reform. Did you hear that? The path to salvation, the path to sanctification, the path to being made right with God is never through moral reform. It's always through the doors of repentance. We must confess our sin, turn from it, and then trust in Christ to reform us. This confession by this Pharisee, or rather by this tax collector, shows that this tax collector had better theology than the Pharisee. This tax collector knew the Lord. The Pharisee did not. The Pharisee didn't see God as a God of holiness by which all men stand condemned he saw him as a God that could be controlled. He was a God that could be appeased, a God that had lower standards, a standard that matched his life. This tax collector had such a high view of God, he knew he could never attain it. He could never reach it. God does not grade on a curve. He is not impressed with good deeds. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all deserve his wrath and judgment. And the tax collector understood this and the Pharisee didn't. Here's the point. If you have come to truly know the God of the Bible, then you will do nothing less than fall before him in confession of sin and repentance. This is the first act that must overcome one who comes face to face with God. You will see how sinful you are. You will feel how unworthy you are. You will agree with God that your sin is as wicked as he says it is. That's what confession means. God's perfect holiness is the standard by which we are to judge our lives by. Jesus said, Matthew 5, 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And when we look at that and we go, but God, I'm not perfect. We would see our sin. And the right response was modeled by Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, who said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When we see the God of the Bible... We will say, woe is me, for I am lost. How can I ever measure up to that standard? How can I ever attain to what he's calling me to attain to? And the point is that we can't. We must rely upon him. But it must begin with a confession of sin and repentance of that sin. But let's look to the third characteristic of those who find righteousness from the Lord. They thirdly seek atonement from God. 
They seek atonement from God. Now, this Pharisee's, or tax collector's prayer, rather, verse 13, God be merciful to me, a sinner. At the core of his prayer is a request that God would act on his behalf. Our translations have some form of mercy here translated. Be merciful to me, have mercy on me. But the word here is not the common word for mercy, but rather it's a word that is connected with the idea of atonement or propitiation. In other words, he's asking God, be propitious to me. Be propitiated to me. Make atonement for me. He's asking that God would provide atonement for his sins. He knows, the tax collector knows that God rightly could pour out his wrath upon him because of his sin. He's not denying that. But he's also going to God and recognizing that the only way for him to find forgiveness and find life is by God providing atonement for him. God must save him. And so he knows his only hope is in God alone. And friends, Jesus puts this forward as an example for you and for me that we would see that our only hope to find forgiveness to be made right with God is that we would too cry out for God to make us right. That God would atone for our sins. Where was that atonement made? It was made through the very one speaking this parable. Jesus Christ finished out his life upon this earth as we are, are, have been chronicling his life. And it leads to the cross. And there upon the cross, as we sang earlier, it was finished. It was there that he made atonement for sinners. And this is what the Bible means, by the way, when it talks about propitiation. You know, it's a big word. It gets caught in your mouth sometimes. But it refers to the taking away of God's wrath, the satisfying of God's wrath on our behalf. It's as if fire was coming down from heaven and God, Jesus stepped in between us and that fire and consumed it for us. He consumed the anger and the wrath of God that was rightly due towards our sins and he was our substitute and he took it for us. He propitiated the wrath of God. Or think of it this way, if you're out on the freeway and an 18-wheeler is cruising towards you, you're going to be flattened in a second and instead Jesus steps in and takes it for you so you don't take it. He propitiated the wrath of God. He took the full force of it for you. And so we must cry out like this tax collector. God, be merciful to me. God, make atonement for me. God, forgive me. Friends, there are many who cry out to God in sorrow and seek to be asking for forgiveness, but they are doing it asking that God would accept their works of penance. They believe that if they're sorrowful enough and if they do enough self-abasement that God must be pleased with their works of humility. It's very twisted. It looks like humility, but it's actually seeking to earn a righteousness before God. That is not what Jesus is calling for here. We don't try to take any glory or any righteousness in anything that we do. We simply depend upon the work of Christ. We cry out in faith. We don't earn his favor. We can never earn his favor on our own works. We must confess that we can't earn anything from God. He, we need him to be merciful towards us. And the good news is that he is. Let's look at the fourth and final characteristic of those who trust in God's mercy. 
They fourthly, they are justified by God through faith. And we see this in verse 14. They are justified by God through faith. Verse 14 brings the punchline to this whole parable. He says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. The tax collector went home justified. The Pharisee did not. Justified is a word that is picked up by the Apostle Paul and used throughout his epistles. Many claim that Paul invented the word justification or justified and that Jesus never used it. Let this passage stand as an example that he did use it and that Jesus and Paul taught the same thing. This is a, this is a forensic word that means that in God's courtroom of justice, this man was declared righteous. It doesn't mean that he earned righteousness. It just means that in God's free grace, he declared the tax collector righteous. And so this verse is a clear statement found in the Gospels of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. This doctrine, we know, was recaptured by men in the Reformation, such as Martin Luther. But it, and it had to be mined afresh from the bedrock of the Scriptures because Roman Catholicism had substituted truth for falsehood. And the same is true today. The Catholic Church says that they teach justification by faith. They'll even say those words. They just won't use the word alone. We believe it's justification by faith alone. Because if you dig through all of their teachings, they add other works that need to be done along with faith. That is not what Jesus is calling for. He's calling for faith alone. We are not justified by any works that we contribute, but only by faith in Jesus Christ. This is made very clear in Romans chapter 3 where Paul says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. We get the whole message of what Jesus has given us here in Luke 18, here in these verses and the theological formulation. We have the sinners, all have sinned and fallen short. But we see that Jesus was put forward as a propitiation, the wrath absorber on our behalf. And what are we to do? We're to receive it by faith. And in that, we are justified by faith. And we can stand justified. Not because of a work that we've done, but because we have trusted in the work of Jesus Christ alone. And friends, this is the good news that we rest in and the good news we proclaim today is that we can be justified by simply placing our faith in Jesus Christ. We can throw ourselves upon his mercy and know that he will forgive us because of the basis of Christ's sacrifice. What does it mean to be justified? I'll teach you something I learned in Awana years ago. It means that God looks, as if, looks on us just as if I'd never sinned. We're justified just as if I'd never sinned. It means he now looks on us as having the righteousness of Christ. In the end, only those who have trusted on God's mercy will be saved. But friends, the devastating reality is that there's many who believe that they are righteous, believe that they will be accepted by God, but in that final day, they're going to find that they will be humbled in judgment. And that's where Jesus gives the final statement of this passage. He says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The scary reality is that those who may live moral lives today may find that they are not on the right side. That they haven't trusted in Christ and so they've trusted themselves. And Jesus gives us a stern warning and I believe he gives us a warning for us today that we cannot be deluded by our own deeds but we must 
always and only trust in Jesus Christ, our Lord, to save us on that future day. So the question before you as we close this morning is which route have you been taking for righteousness? What have you been trusting in? When you put your head in the pillow at night and you are seeking to believe that you're right with God, that you're, you're good with him, what do you run to to confirm that to your soul? Is your confidence in your own good works? Do you start listening, well, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this? Or do you say, I trust in what Jesus has done? There's only one path that leads to justification and exaltation in the final reckoning, and that is through faith in Christ alone, and that path is open to every one of you today. I pray that you take it. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this morning and for this opportunity we've had to look at your word. We thank you for the words that Jesus gave us that we can know that there is a way to be right with you. Father, my prayer is for those who are sitting here this morning and yet who are continuing to cling to their own righteousness, continuing to cling to think they're okay with you based upon things that they've done or maybe because they look at others who are worse than them. Father, I pray that you'd shake them loose of their deception. Please help them to see that they are on the path of destruction. Even if they are living moral lives, Father, you require faith in your son. It's a gift that is free. And I pray that you would please open blind eyes, that you would melt stubborn hearts, and you'd help them to see the mercy that is free. Help us all to marvel at your mercy this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.